Welcome back to another episode of What's That Noise, the podcast that pursues matters of confusion and clarity, however and whatever that means. Today we are speaking with Danny Clark, a local resident of the great city of London, Ontario, Canada, and a retired high school teacher of technology with decades of experience. We're going to talk to Danny about classroom pedagogies, standardized testing, and the role of creativity in student success. And there may even be a reference to The Wire. So Tommy, today's episode is a little bit different. We're joined by a fellow teacher, uh, although not at the university level, the, the high school level. Um, you know Danny much more than I do. Do you want to uh, give him a little intro? Danny Clark is a local resident of London, Ontario, who did not grow up in this country. We've had numerous very interesting conversations at a place that I, I don't generally like sharing with people. I, I just found out about this myself. You just found out about my, my secret place this morning, this didn't morning. you? This morning. I had a beautiful coffee there. So there's this, this place in our city. That is just down the road from where Derek and I live, and we just happen to live very close to one another. It's kind of between us. Yeah, it's smack in the middle. And it, as a testament to how secretive this place is and how discreet it is, you didn't even know it existed. I, I didn't. It's incon- inconspicuous. Yep. It's hard to see. Mm-hmm. I, it, it's kind of uh, not really on a busy street. Uh, and it's really, it, 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 I don't even think there's a sign outside. There isn't. And, you know, I, I think part of the reason why it's also difficult to notice is because it's, it's in a residential building. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not somewhere that you're going to drive by and notice no. unless you go up to the door no. and peer in the window to find, like, this kind of 60s diner. It was, it was pretty interesting this morning going in there for the first time. People said hello to me. And then you introduced me to a couple people and they were interesting and interested in, in knowing my name. Well, that's weird. Yeah, there's this real sense of community there that was, you don't get anywhere else in the city. I think. It was really interesting. This isn't your Denny's. And, and this is also somewhere that isn't like anything else simply because it's been there forever, man. Like this place has been there for at least 35 years. Mm. And it's the same people that have owned it and run it. I... I think the first time I went into this place was at six in the morning. I don't know why the heck I was up at six in the morning. You know me. I'm not a morning person at all. And it was packed. Mm. And I think it's at that moment on a Saturday at 6 a.m. that you know it's a diner because it's the, the parking lot is filled with police cruisers. Mm. This is a local favorite place yeah. for, for police officers. And, you know, the HQ isn't that far from the diner itself. And so I've, I've spent, obviously, a lot of time at this place. I've lived in this particular part of London for the last three years. And when I found out about this little place, I immediately was embraced by the community. Anybody that goes in there more than two or three times, and as you saw this morning, you immediately become a fixture. Mm -hmm. And one of those people that I got to know, a regular, was Danny Clark. We slowly got to know one another. And as I was getting to know this guy, I recognized very quickly that I would be able to learn a ton from him and it wasn't because of what we he was saying it's because of how he was saying it he's a very compassionate very mild-mannered very warm and loving person Mm -hmm. he reminds me of my grandfather to be honest 
He's warm, he's compassionate, he's gentle, uh, and he really cares about people. When I was growing up, my grandfather told me to pay attention to people like this because he was like that as himself as well. I spent quite a bit of time asking Danny questions in this last year that I've gotten to know him. I was wondering about how to manage the classroom. I was wondering about how to deal with student problems. And I was wondering about how to keep students really engaged. So why don't we talk to Danny and see what we can learn today? So without further ado, Danny, thank you so much for joining us, man. I'm really excited to hear some of your stories today. I appreciate being here today. So Danny, I think the first time that I actually had a, a conversation with you, you were telling me about the first time that you came to Canada. And I think you told me about this during the winter. And I, I was just howling listening to you tell people in, in little D&Bs about your encounter with Canada for the first time. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Oh, boy. This was back in November 1974. And I came off a bus on Richmond Street, and I lived at the time on Central Avenue. And I got off, and I started walking, and I looked up, and I saw these little specks in the sky. And, uh, hmm. Back in my home country, Jamaica, we do burn sugar cane, and I figured, there's no sugar cane in London, Ontario. <laughs> and I said, okay. Hmm. This thing touched my hand, and it disappeared. <laughs> what the hell is this? <laughs> thinking, I wonder if these damn Americans had some nuclear fallout and just covered up my skin and touching me and disappearing. Oh, boy. I ain't gonna disappear today. I started running from the top of Victoria Park to my address on Central Avenue. Ben Johnson, no one could catch me. Superman <laughs> couldn't catch me because I didn't know what the hell this thing was. I rushed in the house and slammed the door. My roommate said to me, you damn fool, this is just snow. <laughs> <laughs> So that's my first experience. I, I suggest you ask any newcomer to Canada what was their first experience when they had snow, saw snow for the first time, and they'll tell you some interesting stories. That's mine. You yeah. thought the snow was nuclear fallout? Yes, because it touched my hand and disappeared. You know, I mean, ooh. Oh. But so you thought it was sugarcane? <clears throat> no, the, it's the in Jamaica we burn sugarcane. Mm. And when you're there, there's the, the space, ash falls. So that I'm familiar with. Mm. And if you, my geography tells me there's no sugar cane to be burned in London, Ontario. So when the sugar cane's burning, it, it's, it's just dropping the down ash, like little ash white flakes. flakes. Yeah. So, or dark black, but you see the specks in the sky. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked up, mm, this is strange. What a, what a curious way to be introduced. <laughs> To London, Ontario. Like yeah. I, I know this is a clicky, strange city, man. But yeah. to see see snow in a city that snows all the time, that's got to be a weird thing to adapt to. Yeah, it, it was interesting. After a while, I got accustomed to that, and I have been here now for this is my forty fourth year. Forty four years. Yeah. So what have you been doing over the past forty four years in London, Ontario? It ranged from working in a machine shop, and there's another story I tell you if you have time. I, back in Jamaica, I used to work in teaching and I came here and got a job in this machine shop and I'd punch a time clock. I didn't know to put the damn card in the time clock I mean, it, it, because I never did. I said to the guy, but you see me here. What the hell do you check my time? You, you see me come, you see me go. You know I'm here every day, but if you don't do it, you don't get paid. 
So I learned very fast. Mm. Yeah. Working in a machine shop, and I'm. This was in a high school. No, no, this is no shop. Oh, just in a machine uh, shop. Uh, yeah, small machine shop in London here on Florence Street. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating, good training. I did do machining back in Jamaica, because uh, when I went to college, I did the tech work and all the math and science and everything. So I had the skills to do that. So it was fascinating. As Derek and I have talked to other guests in the past, um, him and I have often wondered after our shows what certain kinds of like expertise and training are like when you live somewhere else in the world and whether or not it translates here. What was it like for you working in a shop here as opposed to back in Jamaica? The machinery was fine. Just attitudes were different. Um, <laughs> we, we live in a different society and we work and think differently. Here, things are done on a faster basis. You know, cutting a thousand of an inch is a thousand of inch, whether in Jamaica or where of Canada. So that was not a problem. It's just the attitudes, punctuality was different. Um, the way you relate to each other in the environment is different. So those are minor things that I dealt with and had to. And you're still here 44 years after. And the people are kind to me and, and we did get along well. Mm-hmm. I had no problems dealing with the people there. And uh, actually, the, the owners came to Jamaica um, when I was there for a while and showed them around and everything. So I have had a good relationship here. I, I'm, kids are here. Everything is fine. And I'm good now. So you're, you've adapted to working in a shop. The culture is a little bit different. You've adapted to the the snow, which wasn't nuclear fallout. <laughs> How many times have you gone back home over the years? And have you noticed anything about living in London or being in Ontario that makes you still scratch your head and say, I wonder why that is? Attitudes. And Jamaicans have, I mean, gee, they may not want me to let them back in, but they have a difficult time in understanding time. And, uh, you know, you say, I, I'll see you soon or soon come. It's a phrase they use. And my God, that could be any time after now. <laughs> and that's just a normal thing. They probably won't let me back in when I go back next time. But that's, everybody knows that. That, that. That's not talking out of turn or anything. The country is beautiful. And I do not think they understand the beauty of Jamaica. Um, they want to go somewhere else. And we'll probably chat about that some more later. But most Jamaicans want to go somewhere else. And they always want to go back. And think, well... Your country's so beautiful. The country's so beautiful, and you want to leave and not appreciate what you have. Why not make it more appreciable when you see what's there and understand what's there and, and enjoy it more? Mm-hmm. See, I hope they do that sometime. So you came here forty-four years ago. You started off as a machinist, and what have you been doing since then? Can you give us a little background on you and your professional life? I tried several things. I, I did sales, financial sales. I worked in investments, um, selling mutual funds. I worked as a stockbroker for many years in London. Oh, boy. And um, went in, back into teaching. I started teaching at the teacher's university here, teacher's college. And that was another damn thing. Can I, can I swear? Absolutely. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Yeah, to show feel Danny. free. We're intrigued. <laughs> Um, I had to take courses over psychology of education and philosophy of education, although I'd done that in Jamaica. I figured, same damn writers, you know. <laughs> and 
What? <laughs> but I had to. And at the time when I finished initially, I was not a Canadian citizen. So I got a temporary letter of permit. Everyone that's got a degree, I got a damn letter of permit because I wasn't a citizen. So I went through that and got my citizenship and got qualified, requalified by a minister's version mm-hmm. as a teacher and taught for a while, both in London, went to Niagara Falls and did some teaching there. And if you don't mind, I tell another little story. <clears throat> my son, Greg, was being born when I was in Niagara Falls. And I got called from my friend that Gene was in the hospital here having, getting ready for having a baby. So I left Niagara Falls 5.30 that morning, made it to London, I went 15 minutes. I flew to London in this big old um, Plymouth Fury. And on my way on the QEW, police cruiser sitting on the side of the road, and I just kept on going. <laughs> I was flying. 140, 150 days. <laughs> the fury. Yes. The fury and the fury. <clears throat> and uh, about uh, five kilometers after they caught up with me, and I pulled over. I said, what's the rush? I said, my wife is having a baby in London, and I'm heading there. And I said, what hospital? I said, St. Joe's. I said, your wife better be damn having a baby. <laughs> Ticket will be in the mail to you. <laughs> I said, take it easy and go. I, and I, that was it. I flew more. Mm. After they, they let me, I, I just kept on. They said, fine, go ahead, but be careful. Yeah. And I flew to London. So I've had good breaks. If you talk about a break, you, you pass the police officer 140, 150. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens if you Nowadays do that in they Jamaica? tell you. Eh? Yeah, they would Nowadays tell you. Yeah. What, what happens figure. if you do this in Jamaica? Especially at that time. They probably would stop you and probably escort you there. Mm. You know, but um, they, they would stop you and find out what the hell is happening. <laughs> so, so you think they would have escorted you as far as no, like, no, no, they, no. QEW to London? That would yeah, be cool. No, no, I, I knew my way. I'd done several <laughs> times because I worked every. I used to come home on a Friday night and go back Sunday night and stay in a motel and work the weekend, come back home. Mm-hmm. So it was good for a semester. Mm-hmm. So I've taught there, and I know Niagara Falls a little better than uh, most visitors there because. I used to go across the border to Niagara Falls, New York, a couple of bars are there. And uh, around the, the falls area, going down by the um, rapids, the, knowing the clock, knowing where the aqueduct runs from, the northern side of the um, falls, above the falls. So when I take visitors there, I show them those things the ordinary visitors wouldn't see. Because mm-hmm. I used to just drive around the locks. I knew all the bloody locks in the area. What stopped there, watch the bridges going up and all that. So it was fun. I enjoyed it. I'm listening to you talk about this, and it sounds like you had a really wonderful time teaching and living around the Niagara area. How, oh, do, yeah. how do you go from teaching there to, to London? Well, that was a short-term assignment because back then we had to wait probably six to seven years to get a full-time teaching job. Mm. And... You had to leave. I was teaching in London. That term ended. That assignment ended. Went to Niagara Falls. That one ended. Came back here. Worked in a youth jail. <laughs> worked in a youth jail? Yes. Oh. There's one in London. Many people don't even know where it is, actually. I tell you that off uh, um, when I'm finished. It, it's, that was another experience. It was fascinating. The security. Seeing kids come in. You know, off the street on Friday night, the buzzer will go, the police cruiser pulls up, and uh, you have one person. And another hour and a half towards his friend is coming in. 
they were together and my friend went to jail i'm gonna go to jail too (laughs) so (laughs) that's what we do in london (laughs) for bored as teenagers yeah let's go to jail (laughs) Tommy, did you ever do that uh no (laughs) i see the jail i think it was crazy but that's fun. I had some very wonderful days in London. I, I love the city. And at one point, my wife and I, we looked at moving to Florida because she, Miami in particular, um, she has a sister there. Um, but after looking at that, um, we said, no, no, let's stay here and work our best here. Actually, we did move to Chatham for a short while when I was in university. And two things that caused me not to stay there. One, I do not like small cities. The 30,000 plus people living there. That's too small for me. Because mm-hmm. everybody say, know your business. And driving east in the morning, you're facing the sun. Driving west in the evening, you're facing the sun. So the hell with that. <laughs> <laughs> Were you still driving your, in your fury then? <laughs> no. no. Probably still, I would be able to see the sun. It would go too fast. fast <laughs> <the sun. laughs> oh, no. That was fun. Yeah. So we, it sounds like we're all, we all have one thing in common. We all teach uh, to some degree um, or have taught um, for a living. Uh, and I'm interested in, in your experiences teaching. Um, what would you say was your uh, most challenging thing that you had to deal with in terms of teaching? Oh boy, that's a tough one. It, uh, it's a, it's yeah. a huge He's really question. good at asking these yeah, tough, the tough questions. questions. I noticed. Um, dealing some, with some families and some administrators, uh, they sometimes do not get the vision of what happens within the classroom. I think sometimes they forget. They're wonderful people. But I feel, they may not agree with me, their training sometimes takes them away from being human and understanding what the classroom teacher experiences. Mm-hmm. They were all teachers. But once you get into admin, sometimes we do forget, which is unfortunate. But on the other side, I've met some of the most wonderful people I've ever seen. And because of my heritage, that was actually advantageous. <clears throat> because I tell you a short story, and this is so coincidentally asked a question, because I used to be a speaker at the grade eight parent night because I'm in spec ed. And uh, after the meeting, normally the principal is there, head of the various departments, the guidance, the spec ed, and I represented the group from spec ed. And I spoke about what we do in the department and all that. And the lady came to me after and said, and spoke to me and said, my son is coming in. I hope he gets to work with you. And I said, okay, fine. Don't come and see me. And that was in May of the year. September, the year when we started school, the following fall, some kids showed up my door. I told my room, room 129 was my room number, and the kids showed up there. And actually last night, strange enough, last night, we, Jean, my wife and I met with the family because he invited us to a function where he got a new job at a recreational center in town. So... That was to show you that is probably, we're talking close to seven years ago. Wow. And uh, last night, this was the experience we had. 
because we still keep in touch. Mm -hmm. So I've made some wonderful relationships. So when you ask me some of the negative things, they're so minute in terms of the benefits and the impact others, the kids have had on me to change my outlook on life. And just to be a better person. I think I'm a far better person now than when I started teaching because of influence on the kids have had on me. I, I work with them. And yes, I've had challenging moments, but I dealt with it in a hum, human manner. Mm -hmm. And I, I think <clears throat> we, when we act in a very human way, we overcome more challenges in a better way than having to battle with people. We have to make tough decisions. And when someone understands and you tell them what you have to do because of circumstances, they may not like it, but they will agree with you and you still maintain a re human relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've worked towards. This is really, really fascinating for me for a lot of reasons. So I'll keep it simple and I'll just point to one. The role of compassion in a classroom for an educator seems to be a difficult subject matter to discuss with some of my peers. Not because they're not adept or familiar with it, but because we're not really trained. I wasn't really trained going through my PhD and going through grad school to engage my students in a compassionate manner. When I think about the influences that I've had in my life that encourage me to be compassionate, they're almost always outside of the academy then. They come from my partner. They come from my friends because I choose to keep good people around me who, who always strive to have a compassionate outlook and attitude in response to really challenging things. But what is it from your background and your experience, Danny, that encourages you to exercise compassion in the classroom? Or maybe another way of putting it is why? Why exercise compassion in the classroom when you feel challenged? Oh, boy. This is it. See, I can ask tough questions. Yeah, yeah. Th th this is um, actually very unique because in my life, um, this is going to be tough. My aunt was the person who took care of me when I was young. And my mom. And then I found a beautiful wife, Jean. And her mom has never called me a son-in-law. I tell you another strange thing. She is in a nursing home, and uh, I go to visit, and the <clears throat> nurse would walk in and say, oh, yeah, this is my son. And, oh, this is my daughter. And they have two kids together. I say, mom, you can't say that to people here. They say, this relationship doesn't work here. But she has never called me a son-in-law. She's always called me a son. And she has been so compassionate to me for that. I mean, Jean, my wife, is an only child. And um, so I'm that son she never had. So never, ever, and Jean and I have been married now for 40 years this year. And my mom has never called me a son-in-law. And that's compassion. Mm -hmm. And my aunt who raised me, she's compassionate. So I learned it from women in my life that guided me and it has been something I carried on because I know that others can benefit and it helps my soul is free because I do what I think is best and it comes from my heart I there's no malice mm -hmm. 
I, if I do something, offend someone and I'm made aware of it, I apologize because the intent is not to harm. It's to just show that I care. And if my caring comes across in a negative way and I'm made aware of it or sense it, I'll apologize and endeavor to uh, make amends. It, it sounds, it sounds um, listening to you talk about some of the challenges and some of the benefits of uh, teaching, um, thinking about the non-compassionate side of teaching and the bureaucracy that goes involved, that goes uh, with, with teaching and the administration that goes on with um, teaching. We're finding similar things at the university level um, where we're struggling to determine whether or not compassion and humanity should be brought into the classroom or we should move more and more towards metrics and more and more towards testing and standardized testing and preparing students for standardized testing. Do you find that same thing sort of happening at the high school and elementary school level where we're focusing far too much on uh, standardized testing and bureaucratic and administrative measures of learning rather than teaching about social justice and teaching about humanity? The focus has shifted and it's something that the bureaucratic forces are pushing this. But then there's, there comes a time when there's a pushback. And many people get into teaching, I probably, because they have autonomy. Mm. So when you're in the room between those four walls, you have such autonomy. And if they're not in the room with you, you can adapt the curriculum to the style you see that fits the group in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's why many people do teach it. Because is, that why, is that what you do? <laughs> I would. <laughs> well, he's driving a buck 50 down to QEW. This man wants autonomy in his fury. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, people, I, I didn't worry about it because when I closed my classroom door and the kids are there, the relationship we establish, you know, I decide what grade I give to that the work output from their production. So I, I'm not worried about the guys up front. Mm-hmm. You see, when I'm being assessed, when in Rome, you do what the Romans do. Mm-hmm. But when I'm not in Rome, when I'm in my classroom, that's my world. Mm-hmm. And I'm king of my world. That's how I look at it. Do you find that younger teachers, um, I, I'm sure you experienced younger teachers coming in after you, do you find that there, there's more pressure on them to adhere to the administrative um, side? Yes, because they do not have the experience and the longevity to deal with administrators. And they want to move up in the system and the coach more, there, but they're late at night. I'm mean, not saying I am not there. I've been in my building 12 midnight many times mm-hmm. and many people don't realize the building is open but it is so they, they ha- have a different outlook and they most times are new and haven't been conditioned to the organization and the idiosyncrasies of governance mm. but when you're this stage of life you have a better understanding of that and you don't abuse it you just utilize it when necessary Mm. What sort of challenges, specific challenges, have you seen amongst young teachers as you're approaching the end of your career? 
Many did not understand the socioeconomic background of many of the kids we deal with. And because uh, many of the teachers, middle class, people who many do not have loans when they finish universities, do not understand a kid who comes in and tells you, I don't like breakfast, I don't eat breakfast, or I don't eat lunch. The kid cannot afford the damn thing. That's why they don't eat it. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't you know, like eating breakfast or lunch. So when you get signals from a student like those, you need to understand what the hidden message is. And many young teachers don't get that until they've been around for a while. Because imagine how the hell can you learn when you, can, you don't have food? And they make excuses. You, they wear the same jacket for three years and may not be laundered. They mass signals in front of you. You need to understand what you're seeing. So you need to assist those kids, get them um, lunch vouchers discreetly because they will still resist accepting it from you because they have pride. So they do not want you to know that they're not at a state where they can't afford lunch or breakfast. So you have to be subtle. Say, look, or you share some of what you have or you say, look, Go buy some pizza. I used to buy lunch at different times of the uh, month and have kids from classes coming in just to eat, a cup, a slice of pizza here and there. Just my way of doing things. So you need to understand that the kids do not like to be singled out to say, I'm poor or I don't have it because they will resist and they'll just walk away. But you have to do it in a way that maintains their humanity and their dignity. And that's important. That's, that's fascinating. And I think um, in sociology, so I'm a sociologist, and I think I say that at least once every single episode, um, but we tend to go to socioeconomic status pretty early in the way we approach. And it's kind of shocking that um, the younger generation of teachers aren't getting that. Do you think that's, some, that's something that is missing from their training in, in teachers' college? or? What would you, how would you, yeah. uh, if you were the doctor and you had to prescribe something to solve that? What's Danny's appraisal? Mm. Yeah, this is a really interesting question. I've mentored a couple um, teachers and sometimes the style they would want to adapt isn't fitting for certain schools. And if one thing, they, they should place teachers appropriately. There's some schools I couldn't work in within the district. I think I would have been fired. Um, The the schools you work in and you have to empathize. You have to understand the demographics. You have to understand the background because the school I worked at, the demographic was so vast. We had people from, at one point, 60 different countries in the building and different ethnic groups in the building and you have to cope with all this and not everyone can do that because they have stigmas attached to or oh, this group is this that group is no they're human beings you have to deal with them as you see fit and uh, not everyone has the capacity to do that mm-hmm. it can be learned i mean i i from my homeland i you know we're actually 
I think looking back, let me divert a bit. One of the things that conditioned me was the motto of our country in Jamaica. On the coat of arm, it's out of many, one people. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. So I don't care where in the world I go. I don't care who you are. We're going to get along because one people. Out of all these people, one. And that resonated to me all along. I go back to my coat of arm and figured, doesn't matter where you place me. I'm going to engage everyone and do my best. I'm involved in soccer now and <laughs> international sport. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some people have different views of how the game should be played, but we all have this commonality. We're one people trying to achieve the best. And eventually the young teachers will get there because the focus, they want to see the kids succeed. And initially their idea may not be as polished as someone who's experienced. But as time goes on, they'll see how others deal with it and they do get the skills. One of the things that we used to do is, we say the kids who are challenging we normally see if we can get them to technical programs and the tech teachers normally embrace them and guide them a little more effectively than the academic teachers. Mm. So that's where, because the tech teachers were the guys who were a grassroots guy, they understand life a little better. So um, that's one technique we use. Mm -hmm. So get them to be engaged with teachers who are experienced and mentors. So back to your question, how would you help the young teachers have a young and older, more older, yes, they're normally older, um, experience to guide them through the stages of how do you deal with the demographics of your school and any others you encounter that may help. So Danny, you were a teacher of technology in mm -hmm. high school, is that right? Yes. Because I'm a sociologist, and because Derek's a sociologist, and we've been in each other's classrooms before, we've recognized that we don't have a lot of opportunities to sit down and work with materials like tech. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can fiddle around with PowerPoint, sure. I'm really good at clicking <laughs> buttons on a mouse. But I, I can't sit down and work with an engine. And what I find really arresting about the inability to do that is that I can't work with the student on a problem by using our hands. We have to talk. And things can get lost in translation. We have to sit down and scribble things out that we're imagining through concepts on a piece of paper or blackboard. And I'm wondering if there are any moments inside of your tech lab where you're working on a very specific thing with a student that you see your compassion as a teaching tool meet technical training. Sometimes, I think, Kids will utilize resources to suit their needs. And uh, one of the things we had to do, and, and this, I, I didn't know what this kid wanted this device for. In the metal shop, kids will make tools discreetly when you're not looking to <laughs> satisfy what ideas they have in mind. So now are we are we talking like pipes and things like that? Any the gadget they can utilize effectively. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the effect may happen to be at the time. Yeah. Yes, they, they would utilize that. So 
Sometimes, even when you see what they're making, you pretend you haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> You're my kind of teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Because the, the creative nature of these kids is such that you cannot kill every instinct they have to be creative. You shouldn't. So sometimes I see things and I, I, yeah, I can't, hopefully the administrators I worked with are not listening. You turn a blind eye because they show creativity, which they would not show on the problem solving of the numbers and the gadgets you're showing them, but they can create and make things to suit their needs more effectively than you're instructing them. So if asked of what project do you want to make? So I used to let them make projects that suits their needs and modify not weapons of mass destruction or anything like that, but any tool they want to make that is legal. Mm -hmm. And they design it, I assist them to set up the machines, and we go. This, this is, to me, this is wow. um, incredible because you are fostering creativity. Yeah. You're highlighting the, the need for, for creativity. And immediately where my mind goes to my own career um, and my own education is oftentimes we don't foster that creativity. Oftentimes we have to take things like standardized tests and we have to, at the end of the, the year, we have an independent study that is uh, like an ISU is what I had in high school. And it's a, basically a project that is very uniform and everyone submits something very similar at the end of the day. It's not creative at all. Where do you see the role of the creative arts and the liberal arts in a, uh, a high school um, uh, and an elementary school curriculum? How important is teaching creativity rather than hard skills and knowledge? Just ask the kids, you know, what do you like? What would you like to do? Mm -hmm. And it, it is something over time I have utilized in the classroom. I asked them, what projects would you like to work on? What would you like to explore? And this is the outline of how I wanted to evaluate the thing. Give them the format to evaluate, because that you know, meets the standards. Mm -hmm. But the topic and uh, the, where they do the research and the views they express, I'm fine with whatever they come up with. Mm -hmm. Whether you make it or you write it or you draw it, I don't care. As long as you express your creativity, outline what you are putting on paper or whatever medium you use to express it, I do not care because give me your thoughts in a way. The colors on the, the item may mean something. Tell me what it means to you and what were you trying to imply. And I'm fine. Mm -hmm. When you get the, the, put them in this corridor, you have to stay in these guidelines. You have to do this, have to do that. It stifles the creativity. Mm -hmm. And I always allow them to be able to express themselves freely. So I'm going to ask the most hard-hitting question yet uh, in the podcast. And I want to know from an experienced teacher whether or not you think standardized testing, uh, like we see um, with the standardized math and I think reading as well, do you think these are beneficial? for students and for measuring knowledge uh, uh, transfer and measuring student success going forward? 
that's a difficult one because it's a business. So, and when you deal with taxpayers, you have to show them that you've accomplished something and you can wave percentages and numbers all over the world and say, guys, your taxes are doing this, this, and this. And people say, thank you very much. Uh, everybody applauds. Reality speaks otherwise, <clears throat> in that concepts of money and learning and all those things have to be intuitive. You have to understand the value of what you're doing. The value isn't on a speed test. You have 10 minutes to do this. Yeah, you're talking time, not value. Mm -hmm. So value of knowledge to impart is to utilize it as necessary in society. And when you're challenged with a problem, if you have the intuitive nature to examine, analyze the circumstances you're in, then you come with solutions. Expose the kids to multiplication. How do you multiply? How do you add? How do you subtract? How do you divide? To speed test the person in that process, how beneficial is that when the application isn't there? Mm -hmm. You have to know when to apply those things, what the results mean, when you add, what do you get from all that? So what if the person doesn't realize and understand that I should add these things so fast? Okay, I can add fast. I do that. Well, when do you add? When should you add? Why should you add? That's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So the others who believe in the standard eye testing may argue differently, which is fine. But it has to be something where the application of the process is evident to the person who's going to utilize it. Mm. And I think to standardize everything like that doesn't mean, it doesn't mean a lot to me. I had to do it because of, I got paid. But my belief system doesn't like it. Mm -hmm. Because when the students understand the concepts, they can then apply it as necessary. The world is changing. If they need to get information, they can research it. Teach them the skills to gather information. Teach them how to utilize the information when they get it. The process by which you analyze. Why should you analyze it this way? The meaning of information when you get it. How do you apply it to society? You know, if you want to see how many people live in London, you subtract or you add. You know, that's what you should teach them to do. What process should you go through to get the information you want? What do you want to find out? And they can figure it out. Because you want to have people who are creative and analytical. If you tell them, well, you have to do this this way every time, how do you become creative when you're directed to think in a certain way? You see? And that, the, 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 and I probably want to do the literacy test we have now. My thing is that if we're teaching kids to read from kindergarten, grade one, wherever we teach them read, and they progress through the system, why one day you get up and say, I'm going to test you, see how well you can read now? Because all along the way, they've comprehended the information they've read and dealt with it, written from their perception of the reality of life, essays, how was the weekend? They've told you about the weekends their dreams and aspirations. And then one day you say, I'm going to test you to see if you really understand the language mm. at age 14 or 15. Yeah. Why? What have they been doing all along? Mm. Have they comprehended life 
the language well enough from age three or four to get to 15. They've survived all those years. And we have assessed them in school in different ways. And you say, no, I'm going to see if you can think. I'm going to see if you can write. Why then? Or why at all? Have you guys ever seen The Wire? Oh, yeah. Have you seen The Wire? You would be fascinated by this. And and I'm going to ask this question. I'm going to try and um, tease it out a little bit or at least explain a little bit about why I'm asking about a television program, an HBO program. So in a season of this HBO program, it's all about um, it's about the Baltimore drug um, war uh, and the war on drugs happening in Baltimore. Uh, and in a season, they talk about the education system. Uh, and there, there's this one teacher, which you remind me of quite a bit, named Mr. Presbelusi. Presbo. Yeah, Mr. Presbo. And he is, he is very much like you in the way he approaches the classroom. And um, he was a former police officer that went into teaching. And he argues that the standardized testing is a way to juke the stats, uh, how he put it, to make majors into colonels, to make colonels into chiefs. And I wonder if something like that might be happening here to make uh, teachers into vice principals and make vice principals into principal into whatever superintendents, if these tests might be operating at that level. A way to show off to the tax base that we're doing our job. Well, I would go as far as say helps in promotion, but what happens, I can tell you for this district, in that they can tell you what grade you gave to each student in your class, right across the system. If you're a history teacher, they know what grade you got, gave on the first test, second test, and everything. Everything was recorded. And... Uh, they will then think you're a good teacher or a bad teacher because of the pass rates and all that. And, you know, someone may visit you to say, look, well, did you explain it well enough to the kids? You know, so it's used conveniently and can be used conveniently to say you're doing well or you need to change your techniques or something because everything is recorded as to what grades the kids get and then you have to sometimes justify why you gave a certain grade or why the, you know, well, you're marking, so you decide what percentage you put on the paper. It, it, you can be directed in many instances because authority does exist for you to be directed as to what grade you may have to put. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we have unfriendly grades, which is, um, if a kid, and I understand that, that I agree with. If a kid is not going to be a scientist and is doing the second um, science class and gets a 47, for God's sakes, give a kid a 50. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. A kid is not going to design a rocket to fly in a damn planet. So no point withholding a diploma from a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. A kid is going to be something else. I mean, maybe the best artist you have in the world. Mm-hmm. So... Those things I understand. We call them unfriendly grades. Do not give unfriendly grades. But beyond that, I am not a strong proponent of um, standardized testing because it it doesn't help the kids in the classroom. It's more um, to appease society. And politicians use it. You know, look at what we're doing, wave the banners, you know, we spent this much of your money, 
therefore we have to show to you we're doing all these things the kids are doing all these fancy things getting all these grades and then they are not aware of how to utilize anything to help society mm-hmm. getting a grade 90 percent doesn't mean you understand the crisis of society the problems of society but the kid who's getting the six days and what have you they understand the nature of something and <clears throat> I'll divert a bit because um, just yesterday in the paper, one of my former students, she's autistic and she's having an art show because she was abused on the bus. And her way of coming back is saying, I'm going to have a show to raise money to support the community. So I, I plan to attend because to me, that's learning. I mean, that's how you bring your will on society, mm-hmm. you know, how the math, I mean, what math is there? You have to teach them to understand humanity and to bring their talent to help humanity to survive the society. And that's what she's doing well. It seems so important to you as an instructor, and this makes perfect sense to me, that creativity, more so than anything, is fundamental to student success. Not measuring stats. Not juking the stats. Not juking the stats. Thank you, Presbo Jr. And I am having a difficult time imagining how to use this in my classroom. And I can tell you confidently as a result of this conversation alone, I'm going to be very critically reassessing how I build syllabi in the future. Mm-hmm. I have often recognized creativity as being fundamentally important in my classroom, Mm -hmm. but it always comes in to this tension with having to teach a field or teach a set of theories, teach a certain set of methodologies. When, When students come into a third year sociology of terrorism class, I need to teach certain specific things. And I recognize that you do as well in a technology class. The problem, however, is that I don't begin my classes by asking the students what it is, what they want to explore. I don't ask them what kind of problems they want to address. And in turn, they don't get to build the tools or the arguments that they think they're going to need if they were to pursue a future in in this field. And so I recognize this, this is related to a whole bunch of other constraints and problems that we deal with in the university. But I'm wondering, Danny, What advice do you have for young instructors and teachers listening to this podcast right now when it comes to focusing on creativity and arming students to be successful with their degrees when they leave the university and they jump back into society? I think, and I strongly feel that cross-discipline has a vital role in this. Because the notion of terrorism, let's take that topic. Sociology of terrorism. What else comes into the mind? What are the factors? What are the disciplines can you bring in? Psychology? The science guys? The computer boys? Sociology, which is part of the course. Put all those disciplines together. So if you had students from each of those disciplines and any other discipline you see that can put bring something to the table. Now We want to understand this. We may even want to have some ideas that can help minimize terrorism or 
you know, the economics guys. Right? Because if militaries had access to resources, yeah, they create hate and all that. And psychology, how can we say, look, things are going to happen in the world. Let's not harm each other. Or if we were to give resources, everyone had enough shelter, enough food, all the necessities of life, they wouldn't envy. The, the frustration of not having will be minimized. Not that it'll disappear fully, mm-hmm. but that will not be the sole thing. I, that guy has and those guys over there have. Therefore, I'm going to create harm and show them you shouldn't have as much as that because I don't have any. So if we were to bring every, as many, not every, bring as many disciplines together and listen and take bits and pieces, economics, how can we help those guys minimize the impact of their circumstances? How can we bring some technology to get them water? Mm -hmm. How can we bring some technology to get them power? I mean... If you look at where they are, the sun is shining most times, and do they have enough solar panels to do things? Mm-hmm. You see, so it's, it's not easy. But cross-discipline, whereby all those guys come together, so you not only examine why you have terrorism and impact of it, there should be a solution part of it. How, how can we put all, this thing, all these ideas together to create... Um, the impact of solution. We, we, we talk, 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 talk. And, and we, how can we resolve this? You see, if all the, the disciplines at the table, or as many of them as possible, we can come a bit of piece of solution, pick one, and say, let's try this somewhere and see what happens. Then you try another bit. So to me, that's the way of evolving this notion into something you can say to one department, the guys, we have this idea. Let's try it over there as a pilot project and see what impact you'd make. So that would be my thoughts on that. that that's exactly what uh, I think many of us in sociology of terrorism would argue is, is the way forward. It's a very, uh, and no, not many other people think, uh, agree with you there. A lot of people think more military, more police, um, which we've kind of, we've tried that. And a lot of this is because dealing with terrorism as a problem for society, in terms of the people who are governors and tend to intervene in proposing and enacting solutions, see terrorism from an issue of stats. Mm-hmm. They see it, see it from an issue about metrics. It's measurable, mm-hmm. and therefore it's predictable. And so we start instituting very specific interventions and solutions and responses. And solutions have to be measurable, and yes. they have to be standardized, and we have to be able to observe It's a vicious them. cycle, and, and Derek knows this better than anybody that I've talked to. And what's fascinating for me then is that as people are listening to this podcast right now, and they're acting on your excellent advice, emphasizing and embracing compassion in the classroom, utilizing a cross or multi-interdisciplinary approach, however you uh, want to define it, will empower students to tell us from their perspective what the problems are. I don't have the mindset or the perspective or, or experience of a young person on Instagram. I'm a 32-year-old. It's very different from me. And they're going to have ideas worth exploring. And I, th- I think acting on your advice to tap into their creativity and the questions that they want to ask so they can answer their own problems is really going to help us continue to push people to work together as opposed to working through okay. metrics and standardization. 
yeah. provide the tools and the guys will know where to find the solutions and be there as a, a support system. And they will work through because they feel comfortable. And once they see someone expressing an interest in where they are in life, they'll embrace those things. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I, I don't want to cut this off uh, too early or anything, um, but I think that this is sort of a natural place uh, to, to have uh, sort of a concluding discussion, uh, not just about creativity, but kind of the future of teaching in general. Um, we have a lot of challenges teaching in our classrooms. Uh, in 2018, um, these things, and for the audience, I'm holding up a cell phone are kind of changing the ways in which we can teach and we can handle the classroom. I'm not going to ask you about challenges that we face with, with internet technology and Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter, but I want to get your opinion on bringing those things into the classroom. Do you see any value at all in bringing new technologies, not just the actual technology, the actual phone, but the apps, the Snapchat, Twitter, Instagram, podcasts into the classroom. Do you see value in that as a creative outlet, as a pedagogical tool? Simple answer is yes. And when you ex- elaborate on that, you have to then say the information, the validity of the information. Are you express, expressing your I- own ideas? And does it come across that way? or it's formally researched and can be verified and all those things. So the usage of the information after you get it on the the devices can then determine or should determine how the information is utilized further. Because if you look at the information you receive and you act in a very specific way when the information is not valid enough to allow you to make a scientific decision from that, it can skew what you plan to do later on. Mm-hmm. If, if it's an opinion, we all know what's an opinion, how to deal with an opinion. If it's factual, we know how to deal with those things. So if there's a way of classifying information when it's presented, so we know what it is and, and fake news and all that comes in. So we have to be able, if we can identify the type of information where it falls, it's easier to deal with it. And I'm not sure how we can do that from a device that, Anyone has access, anyone can write, and mm-hmm. then you can cut and paste and do all those things. So at some point, the system has come up with a way to tell you opinion, factual, and that will make it easier for the public at large to understand how to utilize information. But yeah, the tool is quite handy. Instant information, we're society now where we need instant gratification, mm-hmm. and that's one way we get it. I often, I often think we're, we're living now at the fastest time ever. And now, we're now living at a faster time than five seconds ago. Yeah. We, are just lis- we are living at such a fast pace and information moves so quickly that oftentimes it's difficult to determine opinion from fact or yeah. for uh, verifiable fact. And that's something they people who disperse information should start looking at. How can we do that to let the general public understand how to utilize it? Because it will falsify things. If you use um, an opinion to make a factual decision 
I mean, what you have down the road could be anything. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. see? Well, if you want to make a factual decision based on facts, how do you know the information is factual? You see? So once we have a system that checks and balances, and it's difficult, that's not easy to do. Because yeah. of the speed at which information is dispersed now. So get some scientists and computer guys to work on that one and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Editors said, no, see, yeah. get, get the, the interdisciplinary. Yeah, interdisciplinary again. I, I think you are one of the, honestly, um, I, I didn't hear the word interdisciplinary until I got into university. I didn't even know that that word existed. And now I'm sitting here as a professor. It blows my mind. And it's very, enlight- it's, it's, it's helping me to know that there are people who have had so much experience in this field who are preaching that because I think that that's almost an answer to any question. I give a quick example for a wrap up because sure. um, at my former school, there are 12 clocks on the wall with London in the center. And a former colleague who did um, ESL, we came up with the idea to do it. And the tech guys actually plotted the angle, laid out everything on the floor, and the workmen from the school board put the holes in the wall. So we brought in the electrical guys, the mechanical guys, the drafting guys, laid it out and put 12, 13 clocks on the wall, mm-hmm. representing and eight different countries of time zones were put on the wall because that building represented so many different countries. So we had to show. Well, guys, this is one big family. You're from different places, but you're in this one big family now. And that goes all the way back to the Jamaican crest, right? Out of many one out, people. Out of many one people. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. Danny, this has been thoroughly interesting and elucidating. Thank it's you. It's been one of my favorite pods. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hands down. We have to get you back on the show. <laughs> I don't think we can do it in person until the fall. But if, if you would uh, please come back on the show, we'd be honored to have you. I look forward to that. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much, Danny. Thanks. Certainly a pleasure, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of What's That Noise? If you enjoyed the show, please follow us on Twitter at WTNCast, at Derek Krim, or at Thomas N. Cook. And please subscribe to our channel on iTunes or Google Play Music. Until next time, keep listening for the noise. <laughs>